Right, this morning's reading is John chapter 6, verses 25 to 40. And if you have the um, church Bible, you can find it on page 1070. And on the large print version, it's 1624. It's John 6, 25 to 40. <clears throat> Just a bit of background. Jesus is in Capernaum, which is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He is speaking to his disciples and a gathered crowd. In this passage, we are reminded that Jesus is the one who truly satisfies, for he is the one in whom we can have eternal life. Jesus, the bread of life. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at that last day. Thanks very much, Marian. I'm sure um, a lot of you have probably been in that situation when you're in a group of people, and there's somebody new joins the group, and somebody says, let's just go around and introduce yourself to, to the new person. What do you say to sort of introduce yourself. What are the most important things that that person needs to hear? Is it your family situation? I'm a father of uh, three boys. I'm a husband to Liz. Um, Is it your your job? I'm a pastor. Is it where you come from? Uh, I'm an Essex boy. Hey, I'm proud proud of it. Is it it your, uh, your education? I'm a barbar. I'll let you work that one out. Um, is it your interests? I'm an Ipswich Town fan. I'm a, I'm a tennis player. Various other things. Your beliefs? I'm a Christian. 
Well, we're starting a new series in which we're looking at what Jesus said about himself in the Gospel of John. Not what others said about him, but what he said about himself. And the things he said are quite unlike um, what we might say about ourselves. Um, For a start, he uses metaphors. He says things like, I'm the bread of life that we're looking at this morning. I'm the, the true vine. I'm the good shepherd. And there are seven or eight, depending on whether you count the one in which he just says, I am referring to the name that God used to describe himself in the book of Exodus, I am who I am. In other words, I am God. But each of these descriptions we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks is full of meaning. And so I do hope that in the course of this series, we will come to know Jesus much more closely. But I think it's good to start this series by looking right to the end of John's Gospel. If you look at um, John chapter 20, verse 31, because this is... um, The reason why John wrote this book. John 20, 31, he says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wants us not just to get to know Jesus, but to accept that he is the Son of God. And as we do so, to enjoy eternal life. And eternal life is very much part of the first statement that we're looking at this morning. I'm the bread of life. But before we come on to the the meaning of that, it's very important, I think, to look at the context of what happens when Jesus says this. What is going on around this event? Because the other thing about the way John's gospel is written is that it contains many signs and wonders. Signs that point to Jesus. So, for example, if we go back to the beginning of chapter 6, we see Jesus feeding over 5,000 people with five loaves and a couple of fish. That miracle was a sign pointing to Jesus as the bread of life. He was saying, as God, I can sustain your physical lives, just as I did in the Old Testament when I gave you manna from heaven when you were in the wilderness. But I've now come into the world to give you life, to give you eternal life. Now, the problem is, as it says in verse 14, that the people saw the sign, the miracle, but they didn't understand it. They thought Jesus just had physical power, so they wanted to make him king. And so at that point, he withdrew to a mountain by himself. Now, later on that evening, the disciples get into a boat and they they head off across the lake to a, a town on the other side called Capernaum. For some reason, they didn't wait for Jesus to come back. Maybe they just had to get away from the crowds themselves. Maybe it was getting late. But they're busy rowing a few miles out into the lake, and a a strong wind blows up. The waves get rough. And at that point, Jesus appears to them, walking on the water. And they're frightened. But he says, don't be afraid, it's me. And they take him into the boat. Now, what's the significance of that little story here um, in between these two passages? Well, probably to show that Jesus is there for us in our need. If you've got a friend on the shore when you're in the middle of a lake in a storm, he's not much good. But Jesus is there right with us. He's helping us. And um, it's interesting also that... uh, if you look back to that story of the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, at the end of it, it says they gather five, the 12 baskets 
full of stuff. Maybe he's saying again that um, you know, he's showing to each of his apostles that I'm looking after you. I'm here for each one of you. Well, in the morning as they, as they get to the Capernaum, um, the crowd, they can't find Jesus. They see he's disappeared. Um, they saw the disciples go, but Jesus wasn't with them. So they head over to Capernaum as well. And when they find him there, the first question they ask him is, Rabbi, when did you get here? They couldn't understand how he had got there. But Jesus' answer to that question really hits at what their real problem is. Look at what he says in verse uh, 26. Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, when Jesus fed all those people, it was a sign pointing to the glory of, of God in Jesus. But what the crowd saw was just something to fill their stomachs. They focused on their immediate satisfaction and not on the one who provided it. They just saw a miracle and someone who could give them stuff they wanted and not a sign pointing to the one they should be worshipping. And that leads to Jesus saying in verse 27, this verse that we're going to be focusing on this morning, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. And we're going to look at it under three headings this morning. The first is the food that spoils, the food that endures to eternal life, and the food the Son of Man will give you. Let's start with the food that spoils. Now, I know many of you this Christmas were entertaining, and you'll know that although it's an enjoyable thing to entertain, uh, it is still quite hard work, isn't it? Um, you put all that effort into uh, to making the Christmas lunch with all the trimmings and everything else. Um, everybody's full. They sit down. They uh, flop out on the sofa. Um, probably have a bit of a snooze through the Queen's speech. Um, by the way, it was quite good this year, wasn't it, if you uh, did see it? Um, Jesus was in there. Um, but it's only a few hours later that people are starting to get a little bit peckish again. And it's time to make the turkey sandwiches and get out the mince pies. And, uh, and the next round of eating starts all over again. Because however much we enjoy a meal, we will need to be fed again. And that is why the Jews here ask Jesus in verse 34, always give us this bread. Give us a permanent supply of it so we won't have any needs or worries. But Jesus says, do not work for food that spoils. In other words, don't focus on things that give you temporary satisfaction. It's not that they're bad, but they are what they are meant to be. They're, they're snacks. They're, they prepare you for the real meal that is to come. What are these things that spoil? What are these snacks? You know, then, well, they are physical, physical things that God has given us to enjoy, but which are meant to point to him and make us grateful to him. They are what we spend our money on for our enjoyment. There's a few pictures here coming up of things that um, you know, we enjoy. Food, meals, um, our homes, furnishing our homes, our holidays, our clothes. All good stuff given for us to enjoy. But of course none of it will last. And if that is all we have for enjoyment, there will be a constant hole in our stomach. We will constantly be wanting more. Because they're all things that don't last, aren't they? 
a good meal, an exciting holiday, a gripping film. It is soon forgotten. A new gadget soon becomes outdated, clothes go out of fashion, cars break down. So how do we enjoy these things without relying on them for our satisfaction? Well, it's treating them as they were meant to be, that they are smacks, and not allowing them to lose our appetite for the main meal, for Jesus Christ himself. In Brazil, they've got these great restaurants uh, for meat lovers uh, called churrascarias. And the waiters come round with these uh, spits and they'll carve off um, a lovely uh, slice of meat. And you just eat as much as you want. You stuff your face with meat. Now, they also have a little snack bar. And again, you can have as many snacks if you want as, want as, if you, as well. Now, what you soon realize after the first time is that actually it's not a good idea to fill up on snacks because then you can't enjoy the meat. So you save yourself for the main meal. You hold back. What is this main meal, though, that um, we're looking at here? What is more important than food that spoils? Whereas what Jesus calls the food that endures to eternal life. Now, although most people are focused uh, ourselves as well on the physical and material things of life, the food that spoils people do also have a spiritual awareness. People do think about issues of life and death. People do think about eternity. People do want a supernatural experience because people struggle with the superficiality of life and lack of permanent satisfaction. One of the Rolling Stones' uh, most well-known songs is I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And there's that haunting refrain, if you remember, that goes on, I try and I try and I try and I try. And so people look for a more spiritual experience. And they do that in different ways. Another um, well-known group, the Beatles, you may remember, if you can go back that far to the 60s. And uh, they were obviously trying out drugs and everything else. And uh, then they went off to, to India to meet the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, whatever he's pronounced, um, to try out transcendental meditation. process of transcending thought, achieving the peace that comes from emptying your mind of all that clutter. There's Buddhist meditation, somehow achieving a higher wisdom and, and discernment. All attempts to find something deeper than the physical stuff of life. But how do all those things compare with what Jesus offers. Well, Jesus offers the food that endures to eternal life. And life is written all over this passage. In the passage going up to verse 58, there are 12 times that life is mentioned. So what is this life that Jesus is offering? Well, first of all, as the name suggests, it is a life that lasts forever. It is eternal life. And three times Jesus says to those who believe him, I will raise them up at the last day. Death won't be the end for believers. There won't be a last day for them because the last day of this life is the first day of the life to come. The beginning of the new heavens and the new earth, a new life with Christ that will last forever. But eternal life is not just about living forever. It is also complete satisfaction. Verse 35 says, have a look at it. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never 
go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. What is the most satisfying thing that you can experience in this life? Isn't it um, relationships? Not necessarily a husband or wife, but maybe a strong friendship, a deep commitment with somebody else. Because it's often not what we do that gives us satisfaction, not what we have that gives us satisfaction, but what we do with others, who we do it with. But of course, however satisfying a human relationship may be, it's never going to be completely satisfying because none of us is perfect. There will be disappointments that come. But God is perfect. And so he offers a perfect relationship and complete satisfaction. John 17, a little bit later on in this gospel, explains that clearly. It says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And that is why that spiritual experience with Jesus is so much more fulfilling than any other spiritual experience. Because a spiritual experience that is somehow drug-induced or induced through meditation or any other means is still a temporary experience that we experience on our own. It won't provide lasting satisfaction. And it may actually leave us more empty than we were before. John McEnroe's uh, spiritual experience, if you like, was the dream of success. Of course, the trouble with success is that you get to the point where you can get no more success. In his autobiography, he wrote this on October the 1st, 1984. I was standing in Portland Airport, Oregon, waiting to board a flight to Los Angeles for a week off. And suddenly I thought, I'm the greatest tennis player who ever lived. Never known for his humility, John McEnroe. Why am I so empty inside? Why am I so empty inside? Because he was feeding on the wrong bread. Okay, so what if you're thinking, well, this sounds great. I want that complete and eternal satisfaction that comes from knowing Jesus. But how do I get it? How do I get it? Well, that's the question the Jews were asking. Have a look. Verse 28, they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? In other words, how can we get this satisfaction? What do we need to do to earn it? Because we know there's no such thing as a free lunch or a free loaf of bread just tell us what we need to do and we'll make sure we do it and of course the question itself reveals man's natural obsession with demonstrating that he can do it himself he doesn't need anybody else's help he he is in control of his world but the food that the son of man will give you the food that endures to eternal life is a gift. It's the food that the Son of Man will give you. You don't need to do any works. It is a free gift. The food he gives is himself. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. And so he's giving himself to us. And if we are Christians, we will know that eternal life is a gift. We know that we don't need to do anything to earn it. And yet, This desire to rely on our own strength still creeps in, doesn't it, to our lives. We still need to prove something. We repeat Ephesians 2, that well-known verse, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
And yet there's still something in us that looks for approval from others for what we've done. We still want to feel that somehow we've deserved God's love, forgetting that it's all about his grace, that Jesus has done all the work for us. It's a gift that ultimately comes from the Father. As it says in verse 32, it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So we're given this link between here the Father and the Son. The Father is giving them the bread, which is his Son. The Son came from heaven, and it says in verse 38, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. In other words, the Father's will. And the Father's will... Hopefully you're following this, but read it again afterwards if it's going too quickly. The Father's will, verse 40, is my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. So Christ has revealed the will of the Father. He's been obedient to the will of the Father. He's fulfilled the will of the Father by reconciling us to him through his death. Now, why is it important to stress this relationship between Jesus the Son and God the Father? Because it demonstrates that Jesus is God. He has a different role from the Father as Son, but they are both God. And for the Father to place a seal of approval on the Son is to authorize him to give eternal life to who he wants to give it to. Well, if it's a free gift... What is it then that people need to do? If they don't need to work for this um, salvation, what do they need to do to receive it? Well, verse 29, Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Believe in Jesus Christ. And the sad thing was that for many of the Jews there, that was just too hard. As Jesus says in verse 36, You've seen me, and still you do not believe. Jesus has done some incredible things. He's fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. It's an amazing miracle. And yet still they do not believe who he says he is. As far as they're concerned, well, he's just the son of uh, a carpenter from Nazareth. They know his parents. They know it's Mary and Joseph. Uh, who does he think he is? Some people say today, don't they, why doesn't God just reveal himself more clearly? Then we would know he is God. Then we can accept him. But how much more clearly can he reveal himself than coming into this world than performing the miracles that he did in front of people's eyes? But if people don't want to believe, they will find reasons not to. And just as people then did not believe, so today there are many who have been introduced to Jesus who do not believe. Because believing is not just accepting in our heads that, yes, he is the Son of God. It's giving up our whole independence and desire to do what we want to do. It's giving up the idea that we know best. I don't know if you followed the debates um, this week following the uh, terrible terrorist attacks in in Paris um, last week. Um, Clearly, we all condemn the attack. It was a terrible thing. The debate has gone on to think about what is freedom of speech? Is it such a precious thing? Because for some, it's the freedom to say whatever they want, irrespective of what offence it may cause. 
But there are some groups you can cause offence to and some that you can't cause offence to. Ultimately, people want the freedom to do what they want to do. And will try and use moral arguments to defend their case, but end up being inconsistent. To believe in Jesus is to give up one's claim on thinking we know what is best. And giving up the claim of doing what we want to do and saying, actually, there's only one person who knows what is best for us. And that is Jesus Christ. Well, clear contrast to these Jews who could not believe in this passage is the, uh, the 12 apostles. And later on, when Jesus prays to his father, and uh, before he's about to give his life on the cross, uh, this, is, this is what he prays. You might want to follow it in John chapter 17, verse 6. Let's just flick on a few pages. It says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have obeyed your words. And now they know that everything you've given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. And I think the question for us all this morning is, do we want to believe? Do we actually want to believe? Not, can we believe? Do we want to believe? Because if we do, then we'll be able to feast on Jesus, the bread of life. And as we do, we will never go hungry, we'll never be thirsty, because he provides that complete satisfaction. But what if you're thinking, well, I do believe. I do believe in Jesus, because I am a Christian, but I don't feel fully satisfied. Well, maybe it's because, as we were saying before, maybe we're feeding too much on the food that spoils, the snacks. And we're not leaving enough um, room for the main meal. To feed on Jesus is to become more and more dependent on him and the satisfaction he gives, and less and less dependent on ourselves and the temporary things of this life. But I also think one of the ways in which we can get that fuller satisfaction is in spending more time with him. It's in our prayer life. I just started reading this book um, that was given to me by Tim Keller, latest book by Tim Keller on prayer. Um, it's subtitled, uh, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. Uh, and Keller d- describes prayer as, as there's two real purposes to it. One is communion and one is, is kingdom. So on the one hand, it's experiencing God's love, to know oneness with him. And on the other, it's it's calling on God to bring in his his kingdom. And when we focus maybe too much on the latter, then our experience of God can become dry. It can bring less satisfaction. Now, we haven't got time to go into this right now, and it's not something that will come easily, because as Keller says, it requires hard work. It's it's finding our way through duty to delight. But as we finish, let me leave you with the words of David from Psalm 63, because some of the Psalms are great for, for just warming our hearts and enjoying that communion with God. This is David, who was able to feast on God. And the words are coming up on the screen here. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. 
I will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Amen.